Before we begin our study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. The process of growing up takes time. That's true whether we're talking about physically growing up or spiritually growing up. It's true when we're talking about growing up emotionally and growing up intellectually. It's also true regarding the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit may be conveyed at a moment, but the fruit of the Spirit takes time to develop. There will be important turning points and moments of decision, no doubt, in our life. And decisive moments for us are most significant when they really are turning points, meaning that we go in a new direction. But let's remember this, that from our experiences, I think we can all relate to this, New Year's resolutions are very easy to make, are they not? And they're easy to break, yes? Real change takes time. It takes continuity. And that's what we see in the book of Exodus. Israel is moving from being slaves in Egypt to a new life of freedom, the life of faith and faithfulness to God. It, there was a decisive moment when Israel came out of slavery, but it took a long time to get slavery out of the children of Israel. Changes take time. They require processes and learning. And, and we have advances and we have setbacks. And we have times of recovery. And with this in mind, I want to start our study this Shabbat by connecting with our readings from last week. If you remember, Moses heard counsel, wise counsel from his father-in-law, and he's implementing that counsel Yitro Jethro counseled him that a system of judges and leaders needs to be organized for the children of Israel. And the plan calls for Moses to teach the laws and the ways of God to the judges and the leaders so that they can settle disputes between the people. And the judges are, and leaders are to be selected from people who show integrity and honesty and have a good reputation and people who hate covetousness and dishonest gain. That's the plan. And Moses says yes to the plan. But it takes time to develop those leaders and those judges. It takes time not just to accept the plan, but to prepare people. If you compare it, for instance, to, to recognizing that you need you need more medical help in order to deal with sickness in an area. And so the council is, you need doctors and nurses and orderlies and such people. And let's say you're the person deciding and you say, yes, you're right. You know what? 
it takes a while. It can take a long time to train up doctors, to train up nurses, to train up staff, and to work well together. So having the plan and even setting out in the plan is important, but it will take time to implement. And that's what we're seeing with the children of Israel. God has a plan for the children of Israel. It's not a momentary plan where they will just have an experience and then they'll go back to the life that they had. If God just wanted the children of Israel to learn how to have a Passover Seder, he could have handed out Haggadahs to everybody, given them some recipes, and said, that's it, folks. I've done my job. But it was much more than that. the, The celebrations, the commemorations, the remembering is only part of a process taking things to heart, incorporating them into our life, that is something that requires time. So after that great moment with Moses and Jethro, after that, the children of Israel assemble at Mount Sinai, and we see that Moses ascends Mount Sinai several times. The Lord speaks to Moses, but the Lord also speaks to the children of Israel. And the Lord's voice is audible to the children of Israel. They hear him. They hear him. They hear his voice. And they confirm that they accept and will follow the covenant that God is making with them as a nation. And they accept God's purposes and calling to the life of faith and the life of holiness. And there are indications that God gave clearly to the children of Israel, not just the Ten Commandments out loud at first, but all of Torah. I'm not sure how that would work, given that all of the things recorded in Torah had not yet happened, so it probably wasn't all of that. But let's say it was many of the laws, the commandments and the regulations. So there's... This moment when all the children of Israel are gathered around Mount Sinai, it's an awesome moment, and they hear the voice of God speaking to them. It's powerful. Last week's portion ends with the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, or the Decalogue, and it makes reference to other laws and commandments. There are some among the Jewish sages who say that when God spoke to the children of Israel audibly, his voice was heard throughout the world. And every nation, every person, all creation heard his word and his commands. And even the souls he'd created that had not yet been um, born into bodies heard this. I think it's an interesting idea. The scripture doesn't quite say it like that, but it's an interesting idea. It gets you thinking about all of this. Well, this week's Torah reading, Pashat Mishpatim, we read a number of additional laws and regulations which God spoke to Moses, all of which he wrote down and conveyed to the people. And so if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, turn to Exodus chapter 24. 
How many of you have a Bible with you? Yes, show it to me. I like to see it. How many of you have your digital Bible? These count too. By the way, you'll hear more about this later, but the oldest manuscript, the oldest codex of the Hebrew Scriptures is about to be sold yet again. And it's going up for auction. It's, uh, it goes back to around the... 900s or 1,000, and uh, it's expected to be sold for somewhere between 30 and 50 million dollars based on the recent auctions of other precious manuscripts. But it's interesting that, that this is like going to be circulated for the next few weeks and months in different places in the world and shown at some museums and some other places. It's like the Word of God is going out. And one of the things that's um, up for discussion about the, the Hebrew Scriptures that we have and the uh, Masoretic text, the vocalized text that, that we have uh, as a reference, is who were these Jewish people who developed a system of writing that's used for this particular manuscript and is now the standard for all Jewish manuscripts? And they're identified by this name, uh, Masoretic. That's one of the ways of knowing them. And they were considered to be great scribes and fastidious and, and so forth. But here's what's going to be up for discussion yet again. Who were they really? Because there are some indications that they were Karaites. That they, how many of you have ever had fellowship with Karaites? I have. Um, in Crimea, there is a large Karaite community. In parts of Turkey, there are still some. And there are a few in Israel. And Karaites are not um, rabbinic Jews. They are different. They believe that the Torah, the scriptures, and the writings and the prophets are authoritative, but that the rabbinic interpretation and laws are not authoritative. And so, of course, in rabbinic Judaism, that puts you on the outs. Either you accept the authority of the rabbis or you don't. And they don't. So here's the, here's the big issue that's going to be spoken about again and again. Is our traditional Jewish Bible actually the one that the Karaites were the caretakers of and developed the writing system for and the whole process. And there are reasons to believe they were, but 
you know what that means. It means that Jews of different kinds were having fellowship with the Karaites, and even Maimonides, um, who was in general against the Karaites, may have had high, higher levels of respect than people think. So this may be going over your head because you may not have enough background on it, but I want to tell you that it's going to be interesting to see the arguments, the debates, the, the research, the counter-research, the explanations, and the posturing in the Jewish world as this particular codex circulates around the world. And I am really looking forward to seeing how this is handled in these days. It's, it's going to be interesting. I'm going to post some articles about this and the pros and cons of uh, the Karaite involvement academically and so forth. So stay tuned for that. You get that free. That's an advertisement and an announcement about things to come. Now on to Exodus 24, starting in verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of Adonai, and then going to verse 7, and then he took the book of the covenant, he read it aloud so that the people could hear, and they responded, everything that Adonai has spoken, we will do and obey. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which Adonai has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this is one more moment when the Lord conveys his Torah and conveys commands, the book of the covenant, to uh, Moses, who then writes it down and then reads it to the children of Israel. Now let's go to the very next episode in verse 9, Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. Moses, Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, and 70 of the leaders went up the mountain, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a sapphire stone pavement as clear as the sky itself. He did not reach out his hand against these notables of Israel. On the contrary, they saw God even as they were eating and drinking. So this is like a commingling of heaven and earth at that moment. And these leaders of Israel, together with Moses and Aaron, are having fellowship together and fellowship with the Lord. They're eating, they're drinking, and the Lord is there. And a little bit of heaven is there too, the sapphire pavement. And the Lord's standing there, and what's remarkable, what's significant here is that everyone lives. Everyone survives the experience. Now let's go to... Verse 12, because this is yet the next incident or episode. Adonai said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay there. I will give you the stone tablets with the Torah and the mitzvot I've written on them so that you can teach them. So here we get the, the writing on the stone tablets. And I want you to pay attention to the 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 purpose or the goal of these tablets being written by God and given to Moses, it says, so that you can teach them. Let's say that together. 
so that you can teach them. And now let's keep that in mind and go back to Jethro's plan. Moses needs to teach judges, leaders, the laws and the ways of God. Moses needs to teach them. And so you've got different ways that the law, the covenant, the Torah is being conveyed. God speaks it. The people hear it. God speaks it. Moses writes it down. God speaks it and he engraves it in stone. So that you can teach them. And we come to that place And I really want to emphasize it so that you can teach them because this connects to Jethro's plan. Moses will teach the judges and the leaders the laws and the commands and the regulations and the ways of God. And that will take time. It will take time. How many of you have the past experience of loving to go into bookstores and just look at books. You love books. And to go to a new city meant to also go to its bookstores. And the better the bookstore, the better the trip. And how many of you also had that experience of loving to buy books? Spending money on books. And how many of you remember that rude awakening that buying a book is not the same as reading the book? And that owning the book is not the same as knowing what's in the book? And even that reading the book is not the same thing as mastering what it's talking about? How many have had that experience? And yet you still love books, right? and we still read them. Let's connect to Jethro's plan. Moses is going to teach. And it will take time because the information, the content is coming to Israel. First at Sinai from God himself, and then later at Sinai from God through Moses. And all of this helps us get the picture that Moses needs to teach Israel And, and, Israel needs to learn God's ways and commands. It is a difficult process. It's not enough to know about God's ways and commands. It's not simply information. It's connected to a way of life. It's not simply that we have the information, the Word, the Scriptures, The life of faith includes a responsibility to learn and to keep learning. And this is something I want to convey to you. I want this deep in your kishkas. You have a responsibility to grow. Each of us has a responsibility to grow. We have a responsibility before God and one another that touches our personal life and our family life and our relationships And every aspect of our life, our work, our citizenship, our hobbies, our art, it involves a commitment to education and to maturity. And some of the commitments that God has for us 
are very different from what's popular today. How many of you can verify that before I give you any details? Some of what God wants us to commit to is not so popular. Can I put it that way? Let me say it another way. Some of what God wants us to commit to is unpopular. Can I put it like that? Some of what God has for us to commit to wasn't popular back then, and it's not popular now, because it's a challenge to human nature. And human nature hasn't changed. Now, I'll give an example, Exodus 23, verse 1. You are not to repeat false rumors. <laughs> I really like that one. In one of my Bibles, I wrote a note in the top margin, our responsibility to know what is true and what is false. Now, in media today, including social media and mass media of all sorts, rumors, gossip, accusations of all sorts are very popular. In fact, many people feel if something might be true, it's okay to repeat it or to spread the rumor or the accusation. Even if they determine that it's not true, if in their imagination it could have been true based on what they know about the person, it's okay. They feel it's okay. It's quite popular in our culture for people to spread gossip or half-truths or accusations or to slant things without regard for the damage that it causes so to know about this commandment is one thing, but to put it into practice is another thing. How long have we had this commandment? Was it before the internet? Yep. So it was before Facebook and Twitter. It was a long time ago, let's say that. We've had it all this time. So having the commandment and having the information and even being clear about it is one thing. But to put it into practice is a whole other thing. Let's look at a few more examples. Exodus 23, verse 4. One translation says, don't show favoritism to a poor person. Another emphasizes the, the courtroom aspect of it and says, do not slant your testimony in favor of a person just because that person is poor. Being compassionate to the poor is a virtue. Showing favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit is another thing. Slanting your testimony is dishonorable the Lord says. And then verses 6 and 7 add nuance, nuance to all of this. Verse 6 says, you shall not deny justice to the poor in their lawsuits. So justice, yes. Favoritism, no. False testimony, 
or slanted testimony. No. So it's not good to lie in a court or to perjure oneself in order to help out a person who's poor. And then verse 7, stay far away from a false accusation. Stay far away. Whew. Connect that to verse 1, which says uh, not to repeat false rumors. So verse 7 and verse 1 work together. Don't repeat false rumors and stay far away from false accusations. Stay far away. That's the position that we take. And false accusations are serious, so we stay far away from the accusation, but we also have to learn to stay far away from the one who makes false accusations. And then let's go to the next verse, verse 8. Exodus 23, verse 8, it says, Take no bribes, for a bribe makes you ignore something that you clearly see. A bribe makes even a righteous person twist the truth. Another translation says, You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. It has that effect on anyone. Now, the word translated bribe also means large gift. Don't take large gifts. Don't receive large gifts. They can distort your judgment. Sandy and I were talking about this last night, and she said there's another side to it. Don't give bribes. And that was a decision that that we made when we were working in the former Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe not to give bribes ever, not to pay money to people to get them to um, turn their head. And I was remembering this moment in Budapest where I was driving. I didn't have a car, but I had use of a car at that moment. And my mobile phone rang and I picked it up and was setting it on speaker. And I thought that was okay. But they had changed the rules in Budapest. The law was you couldn't use a mobile phone while you were driving. And so at that very moment, guess what happens? I'm in, uh, I think, Moskvater, Moscow uh, Square in Budapest. And there is a police officer standing there in the square, and I've got the phone right like this, and he signals for me to stop. Now, one other thing had happened in Budapest in their efforts to fight corruption. They had um, issued a new regulation, which is to not pay police officers the fines when you're, when you are caught for some, you know, infraction for which there's a penalty. And the reason was, it was a tool that corrupt officers were using to extract money from the, the citizenry. 
Okay, so I got these two things going on. I'm guilty, and yet there are rules and regulations that I have to deal with. Plus, Sandy and I have made a decision not to pay bribes. So the police officer comes over and he starts speaking in Hungarian and I answer in English even though I understood a little Hungarian. Not enough, but enough. And we somehow made sense and he pointed to my mobile phone and I said, yes, I did that. That was wrong. And he said, okay, you have to pay me. And so I said to him, no, I'm not going to pay you. And he said, you have to pay me, you're guilty. And I said, I'm not going to pay you, but I am guilty. And I'm not going to give you money, but if you need, we can go to the um, police station and I'll pay it there. And he said, it will be a lot of money. And he told me how much. It was a lot. And he said, but you can pay me, and he named a number that was like half that. A bargain. And so, so I paid him. No, I didn't. <laughs> he thought I was going to pay him. He was sure. I was going to pay him, and I said, I'm not going to pay you. I don't pay bribes. I've never paid a bribe, and I'm not going to pay a bribe. This is a bribe. Plus, I am guilty, but I will pay it at the police station. And he looked at me, and he understood he was getting no money from this guy. And you know what he did? He just said, go away. Now, I drove away. That was okay. I've had experiences like that when I've actually broken some traffic law. And I'm probably the only person who's been caught speeding. Or driving, a, you know, in some way that's not quite right. But... I have a habit of admitting my guilt. How many of you have ever tried that with a police officer? It's so unusual to them that someone admits it that they're often taken aback. I got a new car once when I moved back to America and it was uh, pretty peppy. And we were driving from Florida to Georgia to South Carolina and before I knew it, there was a uh, state trooper from South Carolina behind me with his lights. And I pulled over, and he came over to me, and he said, do you know why I stopped you? And I said, I think I do. I was going too fast. And he said, yes, you were. Do you know how fast you were going? And I said, I have no idea because I just got this car yesterday. It's pretty fast and I think it got away from me. And he told me how fast I was going. It was close to 70. 
in a 25 mile an hour. <laughs> yes, yeah, just like that, just like that. And I wasn't the only one going that speed, but I was the one who got pulled over. I said, wow, that's really fast. I said, that, I said, this car just has more power than I'm used to. It got away from me. And he said, I tell you what, I'm going to write a warning to you. And if you get stopped again in South Carolina, you won't get a warning. You'll get a big fine. And I said, thank you so much. And so I took the warning. I put it in the glove box, you know, and I drove 25 miles an hour on that road. And I was the only one driving 25 miles an hour. And so I have to tell you the truth. There was a one lane, two lanes, you know, one in each direction. And for the many miles that I was driving 25, the people behind me were shaking their fists. I could see them. Some of them were saying I was number one. <laughs> and when we got to this uh, section where there was a higher speed and, and more traffic, everybody pulled around me and passed me and, you know, let me know their displeasure. And it looked like there was about a mile of cars that had accumulated behind me because I was going the speed limit. And I thought, well, that's the price of mercy. I received mercy. And so now I'm trying to do what's right, but it sure isn't popular. So receiving bribes is one thing. Paying bribes is another thing. But think of it not only about bribes in that way, but think of it also in terms of large gifts. Large gifts can distort your point of view. And so leaders, judges, anyone with authority, don't accept large gifts. If you have to make judgments, be very, very careful. It can affect anyone. It's what happened to the prophet Samuel's sons in 1 Samuel 8, verse 2. We read about it. Verses 1, 2, and 3, actually. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abiah. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside toward dishonest gain, accepting bribes and gifts in perverting justice. So they're called out for violating this command that their father did not violate. He respected it but they didn't walk in his ways. They knew, but they did it anyway. In the Brit HaKadoshah, the New Covenant writings, the apostle James, whose name was not James, but Jacob, Jacob, he teaches about the issues of favoritism, and I think he expresses a nicely balanced perspective and as we read this passage, it's in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. 
I want you to pay attention just a couple of important details. First, he's talking about synagogue life. Synagogue life for the disciples of Yeshua. And in verse 2, he speaks about your synagogue. In the Greek, it says your synagogue. In many translations in English, it says your assembly. If your English translation says your assembly, it's defective. You can fix it. Just write your synagogue. That's what it says. One of the reasons why uh, English translations leave that out is because it's, uh, it, it breaks the, the uh, paradigm, the, the structure that people have of thinking about what the body of Messiah was like at that time. And a lot of people today project backwards and imagine that their experience today must have been the same as the experiences of the ones who they're uh, reading. And if it said your church, they'd feel fine. But it says your synagogue, and so many believers and followers of the Messiah don't think about synagogues being a place where Yeshua would be honored and worshipped and where disciples would be gathered, but clearly Yaakov does. So the second detail is that in these synagogues that James, Yaakov, is writing about with the disciples of Yeshua, there are both rich and poor people. That's why he's addressing this. And so there's diversity. It's not that everyone's the same. And if you look around, uh, you'll see not everybody's the same in our congregation. And that's typical of Messianic congregations at large. There's diversity. So with that in mind, let's read James 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, practice the faith of our Lord Yeshua, the glorious Messiah, without showing favoritism. And then it elaborates what kind of favoritism. It has to do with how we treat rich people versus how we treat poor people. Suppose a man comes into your synagogue wearing gold rings and fancy clothes. A lot of English translations say, suppose a rich man comes in. Suppose a man comes into your synagogue wearing gold rings and fancy clothes, and also a poor man comes in dressed in rags. If you show more respect to the man wearing the fancy clothes and say to him, have the good seat here, while to the poor man you say, you stand over there, or you can sit down on the floor next to me, then aren't you creating distinctions among yourselves, and haven't you made yourselves into judges with evil motives? That's a kind of person, a judge with an evil motive. What's the evil motive? Favoritism based on economics. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and to receive the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And yet you despise the poor. Aren't the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who insult the good name of him to whom you belong? If you truly attain the goal of kingdom Torah in conformity with the passage that says, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism of this kind, your actions constitute sin 
since you are convicted under the Torah as transgressors. So we're, we're called to show mercy and compassion to the poor, but not to demean them, not to mistreat them, and not to give special honor to people simply because they have money, they have wealth, they have riches, or they have already given us large gifts. You see how that can work? That's the background. So many of the issues that we read about in this week's Torah portion were also issues that the first Messianic communities faced. But they are also issues that we face today, and it's not a question of has the law changed or do people know because the, the information is there. It's this. Human nature hasn't changed. And we all still need to change in a way that allows more of God into us according to what God says is good and not according to just what's popular. Well, that's a good scripture to end with. So let's keep growing in our faith and in our knowledge and in our wisdom and in our character. Knowing this, it takes time. And if you can say amen to that, it takes time. <laughs> say amen. It takes time. Yes? Amen. So let's pray. Lord, we want to allow your word to be active and alive for us so that we can grow up in you and we can grow together as individuals and as families and as a congregation and as a community. And we also pray, Lord, that we will come to terms with the fact that your commands are great, and yet the new covenant which revives our heart and changes our heart and puts your word on the inside and not just external to us. This is what we need. And we thank you for the new covenant that you told us was coming and then you inaugurated through Messiah Yeshua. And let us truly know you and love you and learn to become more and more like you. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to close with Aaron's blessing, and you can rise if you will. And I want to invite you to join us for the Oneg after services. We'll go over to the Shalom Center next door for a time of refreshments and fellowship. Light refreshments, muffins and fruit, coffee and fellowship. And for those of you who are participating on live stream or by podcast, would you consider standing with us financially? You can go to our webpage, bethisraelnow.com slash giving for all the details. Shalom. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep watch over you, guard and protect you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine brightly upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you with all of his favor. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Prince of Peace, Yeshua the Messiah.
Amen.